Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what's making news this week. Shane Van Gisbergen has confirmed that he has held preliminary talks with Trackhouse Racing boss Justin Marks about a NASCAR Cup Series start next season. That would be as part of the Project 91 program. Dick Johnson Racing has unveiled a 90s throwback livery for the Bathurst 1000. To celebrate becoming the first Aussie touring car team to reach 1000 races, DJR will run a very cool livery based on its 1998 colours. S5000 has been forced to change its Tasman Series schedule after Motorsport Australia effectively blocked the category from racing at the Bathurst International. There will be a series of demonstration runs at Bathurst instead with the Tasman Series to comprise of the Gold Coast and Adelaide events. Erebus Motorsport is on track to have Will Brown's wrecked Holden Commodore ready to go for the Bathurst 1000. The repaired and painted chassis arrived back at Erebus HQ mid last week and has since been rebuilt. It will actually hit the track at Winton tomorrow for the team's pre-Bathurst test. Team 18 has signed ex-Formula 1, IndyCar and sports car engineer Tony Dow. He joins Team 18 as the purchasing manager with a focus on the transition to the Gen 3 era. Ford Performance has confirmed that it will have a factory driver pool for its customer GT program that will kick off in 2024 and that supercars drivers will be considered to be part of it. And pre-Bathurst 1000 testing is in full swing this week with, as I just mentioned, Erebus and Team 18 testing at Winton and Triple Eight, DJR, Premier Racing and Matchstone Racing all testing at Queensland Raceway. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more as a teammate that was probably having flashbacks to 2007 watching the mighty Geelong Cats deliver a crushing grand final defeat on Saturday, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, at least it wasn't Port Adelaide this time around, hey? I don't know what you're talking about, Andrew. From, from memory, I think Port just needed a safety car and a lucky dog to be right in that 2007 grand final. Um, were, you, were you sort of barracking for the Cats to try and, you know, blow the margin out to be bigger than that Port Adelaide margin? Because I think that is still like the biggest grand final margin in history, right, that 07 one? Yeah, I always want the grand final to be a close game until it looks like there's a sniff that the record could actually be beaten <laughs> and then I change teams. <laughs> uh, it was – I spent the whole week, obviously, you know, living in Perth, uh, a neutral territory for that particular game mostly. I spent – a lot of uh, a lot of last week having the conversation with people going, geez, I just hope it's a really close game. And I'm me saying, I hope it's the worst <laughs> grand final you've ever watched. I want the thing to be over and done with at quarter time, like it was in 07. And um, it was pretty close to that, that that being how it played out. So it was a uh, it was a good day to be a Cats fan. Anyway, we are a motorsport podcast, not a footy podcast. So we should probably crack on to some uh, motor racing news. Um, I think we got to start with this confirmation that, you know, Shane Van Gisbergen has kicked off talks with Trackhouse Racing about 
a potential NASCAR Cup Series appearance in 2023. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what Trackhouse is doing, it has a program called Project 91, which is all about bringing star drivers from other categories into NASCAR for these one-off starts. Uh, Kimi Räikkönen drove a Trackhouse entry at Watkins Glen recently as part of the Project 91 program. Now, when this whole thing was launched earlier this year, myself and a number of my motorsport.com colleagues put together a feature where we all nominated one driver we felt should be considered for the program. And of course, I went with Giz based on, you know, not just his ability, but his versatility as well. We've seen him in GT cars. We've seen him successful in GT cars, successful in open wheelers. Um, he raced at Le Mans this year. He is literally about to compete in a round of the World Rally Championship this weekend and is probably going to be pretty competitive in the Rally 2 class. Um, I mean, it, it, he just seems like such an obvious choice for for something like this Project 91 thing, right, Stefan? Oh, absolutely. And it's a it's a cool concept, this track house uh, thing. Like, yeah. It's got a real upside for NASCAR as a whole, I think. And like clearly Shane wouldn't turn up with that global star power that someone like Kimi Raikkonen's got, but I think the NASCAR blokes would find out pretty quickly what he's all about, like – it's perfect timing too with this new gen NASCAR being a lot more like a supercar. Yeah. Like I don't think Shane would need to do much testing to get up to speed, especially on a on a road or a street course. I mean, the fact that Penske's have been using an old DJR supercar as a training mule for their drivers on road courses tells you that they're a fairly similar beast. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Trackhouse Racing is a good team as well. They're having a really strong season. Um, the, the one thing, you know, that Giz did flag uh, when he was talking about this with um, Wide World of Sports was that um, the new Chicago Street Race could be a, um, a target for him. I mean, there's a couple of reasons why that would be a good idea. He says, you know, because it's a new track for everyone, so he doesn't have that disadvantage of having to learn the track and learn the cars and learn all that stuff at the same time. And and the dates actually kind of work because it is the week before the Townsville 500 or the date that we expect the Townsville 500 to be. So it's kind of feasible. And you think about the experience he has on street circuits and the success he's had on street circuits. I mean, he could kind of win a race like that. Like he could actually go to NASCAR and, and, and win on debut, which would be Pretty exciting. Um, what about other supercar drivers that could be considered for this for this thing, Steph? And we know that Brody Kostecki has that link to the US scene from his younger days and competing in the lower tiers of NASCAR racing. He's looking to do some NASCAR racing next year in Xfinity or Cup. Um, I do reckon Cam Waters would do all right as well if you take the complications such as the manufacturer thing out of the equation. You know, he's got plenty of oval experience from racing Speedway and he's that similar aggressive sort of uncompromising driver to Shane. Stephen, anyone else from supercars you'd like to see have a crack in NASCAR? Well, to be honest, I'd, I'd hope that there's at least half a dozen supercars drivers that could do a pretty good job on a NASCAR road course. But for sure, like Shane, Brody, Cam, I think you'd probably throw Chaz Mostert in that as well when you yep. look at his raw speed in a variety of cars. But um, if you are looking at that pure, that race craft, uh, I'd probably lob Garth Tander in that as well. Like, uh, yeah. I think that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. That's a well, that's a that's a left field sort of shout, but that's absolutely. We've seen him come through the he, field uh, plenty of times. Particularly remember that last season with GRM when uh, he did some pretty spectacular racing that year. Um, now, Stefan Dick Johnson Racing has pulled the covers off a pretty special livery ahead of its one thousandth race, which is the Bathurst one thousand. Quite fitting, really. Um, I think I know the answer to this already, but you'd have to be pretty keen on that ninety eight throwback, wouldn't you? Oh, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, that their 1,000th race has coincided with the Bathurst 1,000? Yeah. 
Like, uh, so good on them for having a big swing at promoting it. I do have to admit, though, delivery doesn't really do it for me. What? I, I don't know. It might just be the canvas. I mean, the Gen 2 Mustang <laughs> oh, is no yeah. EL Falcon, right? <laughs> That's so, very um, true. Yeah, it's, it's obviously gone down very well. There's a lot of, I've seen a lot of uh, positive feedback online, which is great. Um, so, yeah, maybe, maybe I just wanted them to run an EL. That's uh, I do. I, I, I'm sure this has actually come up on the podcast before, but that famous conversation between you and Dr. Ryan Story at the launch of the Mustang at the start of the uh, 2019 season, where he talked about there being no ugly cars in Victory Lane. You said, "Well, I guess we're going to find out in Adelaide in a in a week or so." Uh, <laughs> I think we've never really got over got over the Gen Two Mustang. Unfortunately, I think the livery looks cool. I think it looks uh, it looks really cool. And again, like you say, good on the team for actually going all out and celebrating that thousands race. It is an amazing coincidence that it's thousands race at the Bathurst One Thousand. Um, so yeah, it's cool to see them uh, actually go out there and and do something to celebrate that. Um, well, look, it's been a huge couple of weeks for Erebus Motorsport uh, as they've scrambled to get Will Brown's car repaired for the Bathurst One Thousand. Um, it was a, a huge job. And it really makes for quite a story, as Barry Ryan explained. Here's a chat I had with him a little bit earlier. Can you sort of detail just how much work it was for the team to, to get that car fixed? Oh, it was huge. It's just, you know, we, we um, organised as soon as we got back from New Zealand. That everybody, every man was onto the car. Then we stripped the whole thing in four hours so we could get it across to the jig as quick as we could. So we achieved that and we had it in Mount Gambia last Wednesday night. So basically the day it got back. And then I went over with it, me and John one of the guys from here, and um, just next morning just started cutting stuff off it. So basically we ended up, you know, probably a day and a half with cutting and grinding and trying to work out how far we needed to go. And basically that needed to be cut off. You've probably seen the photos from the rear, rear file, uh, uh, center hoop back pretty much and just replace all those parts. So huge amount of work. And, you know, if we just sent it over and left Jimmy a fabricator to it, you know, it would have taken him a week and a half. So having two extra people there, even someone useless like me, <laughs> um, I can still cut and grind and sand parts and do all the, you know, the manual labor that takes the time. And um, yeah, we got it turned around in six days, including paint. So yeah, it was a bloody good effort by the people that checked in while, when we were over there too, you know, we know um, Joe Stewart, the 86 driver in the academy, his yep. dad's panel shop, so he, he he was there every night chipping in. Um, uh, just all the part supplies that we've dealt with years that just dropped everything to help us make parts and make sure we um, we weren't going to be short on time to do that. And, um, you know, we got everything delivered as quick as we could. Uh, we had a lot of it already prepared. You know, as soon as it cr- crashed, Jimmy was on to um, getting stuff ready. So uh, it's been it's been bloody good, and now it's just like a brand new car. It's been fully rebuilt, so it's um, yeah, it's from a bad situation, it's turned into a, a good outcome for Bathurst. I mean, I mean, it's going to be quite a moment for the team when that car rolls out, even just at, at Winton on Wednesday for the test, surely. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll take it in our stride. It's just that's what we do. That's that's our job. But we've just been lucky we haven't any big crashes like that for a long period. And you know, if if we had the spare car, we wouldn't have fixed it. We probably would have sat there. And so that's probably another blessing in disguise that 
we've been forced to fix it real fast and properly. Um, if, if we would have just taken the easy route and used a spare car, well, then that car could have sat there for the next 30, 12 months, two years. Yeah. Before it got at, at the time you talked about the potential impact on the Gen 3 program, something like this happens, and we know the timeline on that is crazy tight. Has the repair yeah. taken a toll on that, or have you been able to limit the damage, do you think, by how quickly you could turn around the crash chassis? Oh, we've limited a bit of damage, but it's still probably you know two weeks' worth of getting all those spares remade so we've got spares for the next three rounds, because the next three rounds are obviously all places where you can do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Jimmy's now re- replacing all the bars that we um, we always like to take pretty much a full roll cage in a kit form to Bathurst and Gold Coast. So he's replacing all the bars we used, all the suspension arms we bent and broke, um, you know, get transmissions that broke housings. That's obviously separate to Jimmy. But that's sub assembly. Um, yeah, there's, there's a Gen Three program. It's definitely taken a hit. Probably two weeks. Yeah. Um, but luckily, we got the first chassis made and. There's not many parts ready to bolt into it anyway, so yeah. if um, the second chassis taken a two-week hit, we'll still probably have it finished by you know mid to mid October. That second chassis, so we'll still be okay. Um, you ran Brody at the Bend for a rookie test last week. I assume you would have run both cars there had it not been for Will's crash. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that was the plan. Um, unfortunately, yeah, Will's missed out on a rookie day at Town Bend, which. It's actually a good track to test when you go under Bathurst because it's a bit like Phillip Island, you've got some fast flowing corners, you can you know, um, get, a, get a good idea of what your car might be doing on a track where you know you need a more Bathurst style setup. So uh, yeah, it was, it's a shame, but we had a really, really good successful day anyway. Um, you know, half the team stayed back here just you know, prepping car nine because it returned home halfway through that day when we're over at Tell Ben. Yeah. How are you feeling getting the Bathurst? Like you had some some really quick cars there last year. Are you confident you can be in the mix? I mean, this season's been a little up and down car speed wise, I guess. But are you confident heading to Mount Panorama, you can you can be up there. Yeah, genuinely confident. Yeah, um, based on last year, you know, we to get you know provisional pole and Brody was what fourth or fifth, and um, and then then started a little bit further back because we didn't put some fishing weights on some of our doors yeah, yeah. Um, and then to get a podium the podium was incredible and I think you know Dave Russell's driven more than he's driven for a long time this year with his Porsche series and um, Jack's pretty pretty well prepared Jack's always ready to go anyway so I think you know we're in a pretty good space mentally and that's a big thing about Bathurst if you go there actually thinking you can win you have a big chance if you go there thinking you're just going to run around well you're just going to run around aren't you yeah. We genuinely think we go there with two fast cars and four fast drivers and an awesome pit crew. And um, and obviously there's going to be the third car as well. There's a lot of intrigue around both your wildcard drivers, really. I mean, with Murph, it's about how it, it will he go, given he's been out of the seat for a while. And, and Richie is clearly this mega talent, but a bit of an enigma as well. How do you reckon each of them will go at Bathurst from what you've seen during testing and as part of the build-up? Yeah, it's going to be really interesting. Like, I know Murph real well, and now he's he's very relaxed compared to what he used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think he's uh, he's actually going to feel way more at home when he gets to the mountain than Winton. He doesn't really like Winton anyway, and Winton's not really going to teach him much for the Bathurst. But 
Yeah, Richie's, Richie's been a real standout in testing. He's been so consistent, great attitude, and fast. So I can't wait to see him in tackle the mountain and, you know, get to qualify the car. And, you know, Murph just, Murph's been so supportive of Richie too. He's not the old competitive Greg Murphy we remember where his teammate was a bigger enemy as anyone else. <laughs> he's actually wanting to, wanting to see Murph, uh, Richie do well and he's, he's actually pushing him and really being part of the team. It's been real good. If Richie can really be up to speed, could that be quite helpful across the Bathurst weekend? Just having another driver being able to, you know, have input on on setup and in debriefs and that sort of stuff. It always helps, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure he will get up to speed pretty quick. So the cars are identical, like the three cars are identical. So there's no question over, you know, he's got a different upright or something like that. But it's definitely going to relate if he's going faster somewhere or you know his left foot brake and it's a little bit better somewhere or give our drivers a clue of where they might be able to find some time and obviously Murph and Richie are going to have good data to look at with Brody and Will just to see what they're doing better or worse or whatever. Stefan, it's interesting that Erebus chose to do that rookie test um, at the band. Um, I guess we know where Supercar sits on those rookie testing rules that we spoke about a couple of months back now, hey? Yeah, I mean, that was clever thinking from Erebus to do that. Clearly, that was their reaction to that revelation about rookies being able to conduct multiple rookie tests away from their racetrack, uh, from their test track, I should say. Uh, it's just a shame that for Erebus, they couldn't do it with two cars in the end because of what happened at Pukekohe. Now, the... Um Barry, speaking about, you know, the impact or, or, or on the Gen 3 program, um, of this build, which was quite significant. as well. talking about like a two-week delay on that, on something that there's not a lot of time in. But anyway, look, the, the whole thing kind of got me thinking about Gen 3, Stefan, and where we're at with that now as we head into this sort of critical part of the current season and looking ahead to next season. Now, the V8 motors are currently undergoing durability testing in the US. The revised front end has been signed off by supercars. Teams have started building chassis or assembling chassis kits or taking delivery of chassis from Pace Innovations. MSR just got their first chassis. This week, uh, the new Mustang has been launched, so VCAT can finally take place, and we're expecting that to happen in November at some time, probably fairly quickly after the um, Gold Coast 500. There are obviously still some concerns from teams over timelines and so on, but it feels like we're actually kind of getting somewhere uh, with Gen 3 now. So, Stefan, the question I wanted to ask you who do you think is going to be the big winner from the introduction of Gen 3? I mean, these these cars are meant to help the smaller teams with the smaller budgets bridge the gap to the powerhouse squads. Now, at the same time, we're watching the driver market play out. We expect Tim Slade to go to Premier Racing. Todd Hazelwood seems BRT bound. Teammate is locked in. Mark Winterbottom, some of those questions are sort of being answered. Um, there's some behind-the-scenes movement going on as well, like as we discussed several weeks back, Grant McPherson heading off to Grove Racing. Um, all of these things will be factors heading into the Gen 3 year. Stefan, who's shaping up as the big winner in your eyes? I mean, there's, there's a lot of teams that are going to be going into next year pretty optimistic that they'll be in the mix to, to win races. And if you look back at that last big rule change, the car of the future coming in in 2013, there was a real explosion in the spread of winners. Because in 2012 with the old car, Triple Eight and FPR won all the races between them. Whereas at the start of 2013, there was five different teams win races in the first eight races of the season. So Brad Jones Racing, if you remember back, they were the standout there. They really yeah. stepped up. Um, and a lot of teams clearly will be hoping to replicate that, whether it's BJR again or, or Groves or whoever else. 
So I'm certainly hoping we see that, but it's sort of easy to forget that at the end of 2013, Triple Eight and FPR drivers locked out the first four places in the championship. So I think on the whole, the best teams are still going to be the best teams. Yeah. And there's no doubt too that like Triple Eight and DJR will have some advantage out of being the homologation teams and being involved in all the testing. Like Supercars has done the best it can to disseminate all the testing info out to everyone and also invite other teams to come along and be part of the tests. But I think it's just the nature of the beast in the end that those homologation teams that are deeply involved will have a little bit of a leg up in their understanding. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, a few weeks ago, you know, in an interview I did with Jamie Winkup, he talked about how the Gen 3 program is impacting, you know, the final season of of their of their what they're doing with the Gen 2 cars and how it's costing some speed and stuff, but it's a pretty good problem to have, really, isn't it? Like it's not it's a first world problem. Oh, we're we're spending so much time learning about these cars, we're going to be racing for the foreseeable future. And um our, our lead driver is only 500 points up in the championship instead of whatever else he might be. Um I sort of think going to Gen 3, one of the to me, one of the big tests is is Tickford racing. Um, and you know, whether they can actually use these rules to give Cam Waters a platform to compete week in, week out with someone like Shane Van Gisbergen, uh, instead of sort of doing it sporadically as it is now. Um, and then, you know, if the team can do that, whether Waters is as good as we reckon he is, and he can really properly take the fight to Shane on a week in, week out um, basis. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clearly going to be a reset and an opportunity. From an engineering point of view, it becomes a tuning championship. You can't design a new bit to fix a problem because yep. it's all spec. So you've got to adjust what you've got. And I think that really puts an even bigger emphasis on that driver-engineer relationship, especially in the early stages of the year when everyone's working out what does what and, and why. So there's that. And then there's purely on the driving side, they're sort of opposing arguments whether experience will be important or whether it's actually the younger guys who don't have as many rusted on habits that end up benefiting from a change like this. And in the end there, I think it's a bit of both. It's the guys that have been driving a variety of cars and disciplines, you know, whether that be Shane or, or Cam or Chaz or the Erebus guys that will probably adapt to it a bit quicker. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what does generally happen, and, you know, you talked about it with the teams and how, you know, you sort of get this shake up, but eventually the cream just rises back to the top. So I guess the same thing happens with drivers. Good drivers are good drivers, and they'll be good drivers in Gen 3 cars, um, you know, as they are in, in Gen 2 cars. But, yeah, look, it, it, it's going to be fascinating. I guess it's something that, that did come up a while back, you know, like it's all of those – Issues that you might have with your Gen 2 package, you go, well, we can't bridge that gap to AAA, we can't bridge that gap to DJ or whatever. Well, the opportunity is going to be there. So it's going to be interesting to see who can make good on the promises that they, you know, that, oh, if only we could do this, if only we had this, we would be able to compete with those guys. Well, this is going to be the opportunity and it's going to be it's going to be interesting. And like you mentioned before, so many teams will see it as an opportunity, um, but they can't all be winning races mm. every single week. So it's someone's going to not make that big step forward and take the fight to Triple Eight. 
So yeah, and there'll be the, there'll be the classic thing too, where someone will win a race early, but they might not necessarily understand why the car yeah. was that quick on that day on that weekend. Yeah. So you you get a bit of that as well. That some people who are further back, if they actually are, are learning and, and building the toolbox, then they're going to be better off in the long run, even if they don't come out of the block super strong. Yeah, and and I also don't necessarily think it's going to remove all the excuses. One one thing that I think will be very interesting, and we've seen this with categories that basically have a spec engine before, where you buy, you know, there's a pool of engines built by uh, a a homologation outfit that is nominated mm. by the manufacturer. Uh, and they're all meant to be exactly the same, but motors just aren't exactly the same. You've got a bunch of mechanical bits in there and, you know, it doesn't take much for them not to quite be exactly the same. Um, teams can build the current motors. They might build three motors and they don't change the way they build them, but their motors aren't always exactly the same. So kind of when you take the complete control away from the teams of, of that hardware, I just wonder whether we're going to see some teams going, well, I don't think I've got a very good motor. I don't think I've got a great motor from you know, MozTech uh, or from KRE or, you know, whatever whatever side of the of the divide I'm sitting on and where I got my motors from. And I saw that, you know, I covered a little bit of the old Formula 2, um, not the current FIA Formula 2, but the old Formula 2 that was running around Europe in uh, sort of 2012, 2013, and there was always, oh, that guy's just got the good motor. He's winning because he's got the good motor because that was that same sort of system where someone goes, well, here's your motor, yeah. there you go. Um, so unless you're actually doing like the W series thing where they get like, you know, they go back into the pool and come back out. I don't know. There's just I think that's where we could see some of the excuses emerge when guys aren't going all that well. Yeah, I think that's the one thing we can predict with hundred percent accuracy <laughs> that there will be people not going well making excuses. That's a good full stop on that uh, that conversation. Ah uh, yes, motor racing. We uh we absolutely love it. All right, let's move away from supercars now and talk a bit about S five thousand. Um, so the Bathurst International has been dropped from the Tasman Series calendar at the request of Motorsport Australia. The governing body says it is undertaking a revised risk management review of competition at Mount Panorama. To simplify that, Motorsport Australia is clearly not comfortable with open wheelers going that quickly around that track. Um, of course, S5000 did race at Bathurst last year as part of the six-day Super Bathurst in December. The power was clipped to keep it in line with the power-to-weight ratio required for a Grade 3 FIA licence for a circuit. Um, but, you know, we saw Aaron Cameron go under two minutes in qualifying. All four races were shortened due to crashes, including that monster between Aaron and Lewis Leeds in the finale. Um, Stefan, I think I'm about to say something wildly controversial here, um, for me at least. I kind of agree with this decision. I, like, I, I, I understand open-wheeler racing a bit and how it works, and, and I really didn't enjoy watching those races last year it felt dangerous and it looked dangerous and the thing that gets me is the chase where the corner actually bends back on itself Um, it's a dangerous corner because you can spear off in one part and collect someone who's exiting the corner it's dangerous enough in a tin top or in a touring car in an open car it's just unbelievably dangerous and it really sort of made me made me nervous watching it. And, I mean, motorsport has become so risk-averse. Even at club racing level, you almost don't see localised yellow flags anymore. It's safety car at best, red flag at worst if someone's off the track. If it's raining, professional motor racing basically doesn't happen anymore. Now, I don't necessarily agree with all that, but, you know, credit where it's due, I can see how S5000 at Bathurst is worthy of, you know, some raised eyebrows and and maybe some safety considerations. What are your thoughts on, on all that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's valid. It was certainly uh, uncomfortable watching some of that racing last year. But the thing I would question out of this 
uh, news really is the timeline. So that racing S5000 at Bathurst we were talking about happened last December. Yeah. So they've had a fair bit of time to review and consider this and come up with an outcome either oh, way. And then so confirm if, and confirm a calendar since then as well. So obviously yeah, so it was if, green lit at some point. If MA had done their review and said it's unsafe, it'd be easier, I think, as a spectator to cop the fact that they're not racing, but to cancel the races, what, like six weeks mm. just over out from the event because the review isn't completed. That's a strange sort of message they've got going on there. And then there's an irony in them doing demo runs unrestricted. Yeah. So yeah. They, they clipped that power out of the cars last year, 90 or 100 horsepower, um, and said that now, that was okay, but now they're giving it back and they should be doing like 153s, 154s yeah. with, uh, with that extra motor. So they'll be insanely fast. And the upside of that from a spectator's point of view is that it should be pretty exciting. I mean, I've, I felt like the qualifying session last year for S5000 at Bathurst was the highlight of their weekend by yeah. far. And it was one of the great, I guess, memories of that whole week of racing that we had at Bathurst with all those categories was watching these cars go quicker and quicker. And then Aaron Cameron just snuck it into the 159s right at the end. It was a brilliant crescendo to that session. So that's definitely going to be a cool thing, but it, it does feel a bit odd that it's too dangerous to race, but then they're going up there unrestricted to, to do some lap times. Yeah, no, I, I take that point. I guess the fact that they, they're they less likely to bash wheels and send someone flying across the gravel at the chase and spearing into someone who's on his way out of the corner it <laughs> sort of it is a factor. But no, I sort of I, I do take I do take on board what you're saying there. It will be it will be interesting to see just how how quick they go. I mean, I guess if you're not necessarily racing for something, maybe the there's a bit of driver in that, takes a little bit of the driver out of it. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, it's, it's ironic that we're talking about the chasers being the danger point when that was the bit added to the circuit to make it safer, obviously, a few years ago now, back in 87. But um, there's also an argument that maybe some of those incidents at the chase last year were kind of caused by that horsepower cut in a way, like if they'd had all their grunt and then a bit higher speed and a bigger draft, people could have got their moves done yeah. before the chase and not been side-by-side side into there. Um, so that's probably one thing. But also there were, there were some other incidents too that affected those races, some silly stuff with cars tripping over each other at Hell Corner, which is the sort of shunt you're going to see on the Gold Coast and in Adelaide yeah. in, the, in the two rounds that will happen if people don't drive these cars smartly. Like they're big cars, they're sort of awkward to race. So... Yeah, Bathurst is one conversation, but it kind of doesn't yeah, it doesn't look at the big picture either. All right, let's take a look at what's happening around the world. Uh, Jack Miller dominated the Japanese Grand Prix with a mesmeric performance for Ducati. The Aussie led home Brad Binder and Jorge Martin. Uh, the MotoGP title contenders, meanwhile, all struggled. Fabio Quartararo finished just eighth, while Francesco Bagnaia crashed out while trying to pass his French rival on the last lap. Aleish Espargaro had to swap to his spare bike due to a mechanical issue on the warm-up lap and finished 16th. It's just so funny with Jack. He's so good sometimes. When he's at his best, he is so good, and we just unfortunately don't quite see enough of it. But, man, he can ride when uh, <laughs> when it's all going his way. Anyway, in the DTM, Kiwi Nick Cassidy and Thomas Prining shared the wins at the Red Bull Ring. And in the NASCAR Cup Series, Tyler Reddick won the 500-mile race at Texas Motor Speedway where avoiding tyre failures was, uh, was the key to getting a result. Okay, Castrol mailbag time. 
Alex Weir asked that with so many control components on the Gen 3 cars, why doesn't supercars adopt a spares truck system like Porsche does with Carrera Cup and Toyota does with the 86 series? He says the teams could carry less spares and the category could make some money and ask if that would be a win-win situation. It's an interesting theory, Alex. Stefan, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question because this was definitely something that supercars considered initially and I think it's probably what they should have done because they've ended up with a car that's almost all spec parts, which clearly does save money, but teams are tooling up to make their own versions of everything, which is massively inefficient. Um, You know, some teams are working together on a few bits and pieces, but it's really a missed opportunity when you step back and look at the big picture, just like with the chassis, like there could have been one supplier for all that rather than there being four in the end. So clearly though, supercars decided it's not their business model to be coordinating parts like that. There's obviously a fair bit of capital involved in holding stock. Mm -hmm. And then there's logistics around warehousing and distributing and all of that stuff that they didn't want to commit to. And I guess the the important point as well is it's a bit different to Porsche where they're all Porsche motorsport parts that it's a global program. They're all yeah. being brought in from one source anyway. So it makes sense that they're distributed from, from one source and it's a good little money earner for Porsche there as well. So that's a turnkey setup where for supercars to do it, big investment, but also a big cultural change from the fact that the teams are so used to doing things themselves. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where certainly some teams would have been in favour for it. It depends, like you say, it depends what your model is as a team as well, whether you are making bits and selling bits to other teams already and that sort of stuff and actually making some money off that or you feel you can save money by making things yourself as opposed to having to buy it. Um, you know, if Supercuts had done that and nominated a team to make, they would have, you know, someone would have needed to make all those bids, that team would have been pretty happy about it uh, because they obviously would have, would have copped a good earn out of that. But yeah, interesting theory, but certainly not what we're going to see with Gen 3, at least in the short term. All right, let's hand out some Castrol Stars of the Week. Now, Stefan, I'm handballing my Castrol Star of the Week straight to Tommy Randall, uh, not because he races in the mighty Castrol colours, uh, but because of his awesome torpedo last Saturday. Now, Tommy was part of the longest kick competition in the build-up to the AFL Grand Final. He torped the share in a massive 45.6 metres into the Yarra River. Uh, he finished seventh in the competition, actually beating out a couple of AFL players, uh, which was unbelievably cool to see. So he's getting my star. Stefan, where's your Castrol star headed? I will say, firstly, that I was watching that and no one seemed more surprised than uh, than Tommy when he got onto that torp. <laughs> I think he, he, he was there saying, seemed, hey, it actually spun. Like, he couldn't yes. believe it. He also seemed pretty surprised when uh, Jason Dunstall, obviously AFL legend, um, his, his Bathurst follow-up question to him on the TV was, uh, Bathurst 1000 coming up next week, how far do you think you can go? <laughs> which um, hopefully a thousand Ks, I think, was uh, Randall's answer, which was uh, <laughs> a good one there. But my Castrol Star of the Week is Richard Davison. Richard won the Kent Class title in the Victorian Formula Ford Championship on the weekend, driving a car that was previously raced by his famous sons, Alex and Will. Now, my colleague Conor O'Brien wrote a great yarn for the V8 Sleuth website a couple of weeks back with Richard, who talked about running the car in its original wins colours as a tribute to the late Gary Dumbrell and his desire to try to win this title in that car. So it was really good to see him get that done uh, on the weekend. Good choice, Stefan. 
you know my feelings about Ken Powered Formula Fords, so uh, <laughs> I very much like that. Now, I am going to chuck out a bonus Castrol star uh, this week. It's going to go to Jay Runciman. I hope I pronounced his name right, um, who was the winner of the Castrol, uh, of Castrol's helmet design competition. Uh, Jay designed an absolute beauty, and helmet painter extraordinaire Rod Gilchrist executed it magnificently. Um, so there's a Castrol merch pack, pack headed your way, Jay, and thanks for the cool helmet design. Uh, it made a successful debut at Wanneroo the other week, and uh, and I got lots of compliments for it, mostly because I was literally stopping everyone that walked past and going, like, look at this thing. How cool is it? So, um, no, I'm very chuffed with that. So thank you very much. Uh, and just I before- thought you were getting the compliments because he was covering up your head. That's <laughs> That too. That I wasn't. I wasn't walking around the pits wearing it. Just to, just to, just to clarify that. Um, and just before we go, a little update on something I teased last week. Uh, Stefan, you and I would love to catch up with all of our Bathurst bound listeners next week. So if you're headed to the mountain, keep Friday evening free. We're going to drop into the Oxford from 7 p.m. onwards. For a jar or two, and we'd love for you to join us. Uh, just hit either myself or Stefan or the V8 Sleuth team up on the socials to let us know that you're keen. So we've got a rough idea on numbers. But, uh, yeah, we'd love you to get along and have a chat about uh, what we've been seeing unfold at Mount Panorama. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe, and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast. And we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.